This is a Podcast Now production. I drank some mouthwash. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm really, and I got into my car to drive across the island to take one for the team. And I got to his office fully prepared <laughs> to record a podcast. Everybody, come on, move on. <laughs> Fully Prepared with Andy King. I think for some people, they woke up and realized they were sleepwalking through their life. They realized they were just going to work, earning money, coming home, watching Netflix. And they almost thought that not enjoying their job was a part of being human. And I think a lot of people woke up and were like, hold on. In places like Amsterdam, the bouncers will say, hey, let me see what you got. Get your hand out, show them a couple of MDMA pills. They'll be like, be careful with this one. In you go. And if you have more than five, I think five's the limit that you're allowed. And where there's more leniency and more freedom with these things, I think people would then be more responsible. How would you like to be one of the biggest, most visible failures in pop culture today? Yeah, that's me. How would you like that? And I'm like, you know what? You learn more from your failures than you do your successes. And I say, kids, get out there and take a risk. Get out there and do something you never dreamed you'd ever do. And you might have to do something to make your startup successful. You might have to go the extra mile. No matter how good my week goes, I get beaten up at least once a week. Once a week, someone wipes the floor with me. It doesn't matter if I've got a blue tick or nearly a million followers. It doesn't matter if my podcast is smashing it or I've sold a million books. One person each week beats me up. And it's such an amazing thing. That's why so many people are obsessed with martial arts because there's this humility that comes with it. For years, people have gone to religion having this higher being. I don't need a God when there's a black belt around the corner who's gonna beat me up. If you could tell me about a time where you had to take a big one for the team, what, what would that be? All right, everybody. It's Andy King. I am so excited to have you listening to Fully Prepared. And I'm really excited to introduce you to James Smith, my guest today. And it's interesting. James is going to be able to talk a lot more about it. But known for his no-nonsense approach, which is something I love, and compared to, I love the quotes, the Gordon Ramsay of the fitness world. And that is sort of a, it'll be interesting to chat about that too, because, you know, I feel like working out and fitness can be very intimidating, and it can be scary and daunting for many people. James, you've got an amazing approach, and I'd love to talk to you a little bit more about that. So, in you know, it, it, just to give the listeners a little bit of a of a background, can you give us just a teeny intro on James Smith? Yes. So, if anyone's trying to figure out the accent, I am British. I'm from the United Kingdom. Uh, however, I spend as much of the year as I can in Australia. I'm a personal trainer where I spent years on the floor with clients, working face to face, and in the last few years, I've taken the approach online. So instead of working with 10 people at a time, I can use my message to hopefully resonate with more people at the same time. I love that. That is so cool. Now the no nonsense approach, give us a picture like, so the day in the life, here I am, I'm 60 years old. Um, I'm in pretty good condition. I, I'm not overweight. Um, the world of, uh, for so much of my life as an event planner, as you know, event planners, like our schedules are crazy. And often we don't go to sleep until three or four o'clock in the morning when the events are over. And for many years, I had a personal trainer that came every morning at 7 a.m., even just after three or four hours of sleep. And I wasn't always feeling like I was getting the most out of it, but at least it became a routine and I was doing my best. What, you know, how do you deal with people that are busy executives, have crazy careers, but are still trying to balance fitness? I think you hit the nail on the head there when you said trying your best. I don't have any problems with people who can hand on heart at the end of the day go, yeah, I'm doing everything I can do. And even if it's not the perfect finished finish picture, that's really what we want from people. The no nonsense approach really comes to those people that are bullshitting their way through doing their best. 
people that are, you know, saying or talking a big game. And I'm sure in the events industry, you've come across a lot of talkers in your time. And you're like, hold on, what you're saying and what you're doing isn't adding up. And it's not about saying, okay, this person's too fat, that person's too unfit. It's about calling bullshit on the people that are almost feeding themselves a false narrative about how hard they're working and saying to them, okay, I think we have an effort discrepancy. And I mean, for you to have minimal sleep and to get up and, and do your training, that's great. And, you know, we're not all expected to look like, you know, front cover magazine model, but we all are expected to give maximal effort. And I think that's where in recent years, maybe with the climb of social media, I'm not quite sure, people have definitely st stopped working as hard. Yeah, stopped working as hard. And, and what's your take on the steroids these days? It's amazing because I will say to my partner, wow, look at this guy. He is built. And my partner works out every day and he'll say, Andy, uh, looks like that guy could be on some steroids. That's for sure. Do you yeah, see so it every day? You must, James. Yeah. And do you know what? I'll be honest with you. When I was a bit younger, uh, I did a few cycles because I wanted to be taken seriously as a personal trainer. So when I saw uh, how the, the landscape looked, I thought, oh, I'm going to need a bit of help here. And it, you know, it was almost like a little 12 week holiday. And then as soon as I took steroids, I knew exactly why people do it. You feel great when you're on, when you come off, there are a few complications and you are manipulating your hormones. Uh, and anyone that goes through life ever having a hormonal issue will understand how vast the, the issues can be with, with doing this. But imagine that you're a young male, you're in the fitness industry, you've got social media platforms like Facebook, you've got Instagram, you've got TikTok. And you doing a workout of a chest press suddenly got you more views than anything that you've ever got before. And you're wearing like a little stringy vest on it. And then you think to yourself, oh, people like looking at me in good shape. If I take anabolic steroids, I'm going to look even better in even bigger shape. And then more people are going to want to watch me. More people are going to follow me. And then you think to yourself, oh, you know, this could be, you can fool yourself as well. This can be part of my brand. This can be part of, you know, the supplement company that I'm going to get endorsed for. And cutting corners, I almost think to myself, if I was in a position where I was, you know, actually looking good for a living, which is what a lot of influencers are doing, you would almost have to be stupid not to mislead the public to, you know, make it seem like it was natural. Uh, I'm not sure. He's in, a, he's in America. Have you heard of a guy called the Liver King? The Liver King? No. So he's, uh, he's, he's, a, he's a guy. He's in Texas at the moment. He's got a beard. He always has his hat on back to front. And the guy's in tremendous shape. And he has these tenets of ancestral living. And he, he has videos where he says he sleeps on a wooden bed with just a thin sheet and that he doesn't brush his teeth or wear deodorant because he's an you know, ancestral. And the, he, the, the key components of his message are great. They're like sleep, eat well. But he's out there like throwing spears in the garden in this six-bedroom house with a swimming pool. And um, he owns a company called Ancestral Supplements oh, where, you know, I'm promoting his product now, where he pretty much says that liver eating the animal from, you know, uh, mouth to hoof or whatever it is, he says. And it's very obvious that, you know, a lot of people will take performance enhancing drugs, look the part, and then point the finger to something conveniently that is what they're selling. And in my honest personal opinion, I think that people like Liver, Pink, Liver King is doing what people have done for a very long time, where they've bent the rules of the game to benefit their own, their own business. And now it's been easier than ever. I mean, and again, we look at The Rock, Dwayne Johnson, big fan of his. But you can't tell me that someone built more muscle in their 40s than their 30s. And you can't tell me that someone built more in their 50s than their 40s. It goes against the natural decline of, of hormones in males and everything we know. So, you know, I think he's a great guy. I think he's, uh, you know, is a fantastic role model for people. But we need to be real with ourselves that people are going to do it for movie roles. They're going to do it to, for their brand. And it's going to work out financially very viable for these people. I think you, and you bring up a great example. I mean, James, The Rock is amazing. Think of his, his marketing and his, I think, his attraction to, to so many different age groups as well. Um, obviously, he's a little bit corny in some of his movies, and you kind of cringe when he says all his funny things. But um, I feel like he does a pretty good job. And that's one of the things that I try to focus on in life a little bit is my, my sort of my mantra of everything in moderation. And how do you address that, you know, from a health perspective and a fitness perspective? I think that uh, you're, you're definitely right there. There's going to be 
context for everything. You know, is a burger a good food? Yeah. Well, if someone's struggling to lose weight within that context, it's probably not the best. But for someone who's worked really hard for a period, they've restricted calories, they've had several weeks of good progress. Yeah, that's absolutely fine. And that balance is 100% there. And I think that, you know, whether we look at alcohol, whether we look at food, whether we look at work-life balance, there's always going to be this sweet spot in the middle. And we're going to have off to one end of a spectrum too much and one end of the spectrum too little. And it's really important that we kind of, you know, test the temperature on this with everyone and make sure that they are in the right place with all of this. Because, you know, being incredibly wealthy with no work-life balance isn't good. You know, being in incredibly good shape and, you know, not having a diet that brings you any happy isn't a good deal. And we need to understand that the pinnacles aren't to see who dies with the most money, isn't to see who can be in the best shape for the shortest period of time. It's not to see who can have the biggest muscles. It's about who can, you know, at all the same time, simultaneously get a good deal from every element of their life. That's for me, like, how's your work? How are your relationships? You know, how's your diet? How's your exercise regime? Because someone who is in a loving relationship, loves their work, is in, you know, a good bit of health and enjoys their training, to me is one of the wealthiest people on the planet. Their bank account balance wouldn't just back that up all the time for other people to see. God, James, I love that. You know, it, it is sort of, when I'm part of my audience, a major part of my audience are all Gen Zs, Gen Xs, and Millennials. And I often, you know, the shift today of, of um, you know, what do, what do these kids want moving forward? What do they want in their lives? And a lot of them aren't looking to drive the fanciest BMW. They don't want the biggest house in the neighborhood. They want a balanced life full of great experiences. And part of that is now, because of social media, I think more and more, you are what you eat, you are what you wear, you are where you go, you are, you know, who you hang out with. And it's really important. And so it's fascinating to see um, my ethos is predominantly in the event world about sustainability. And so I host these very large events that are as close to zero waste as possible. And it's fascinating where um, a major part of my constituents are all vegan and I'm not. But then I see this, these inspirational stories of like, I mean, look at you, James, you look great. I mean, Tom Brady, I mean, what an amazing football player. And there he is, a vegan. Like, what do you eat, James? So I, I eat uh, a pretty standard diet. I think that because I'm, I'm quite big, I weigh about 95 kilograms. That's in pounds. I'm nearly 210 pounds uh, and I'm pretty active. Okay. I really enjoy training. So because of that, I am fortunate and I would say I'm privileged because, and one thing people overlook is how big you are has a big impact to how many calories you burn. So if I was dating a girl who was half my weight, she was a, you know 105 pounds. If we go to McDonald's and we have a Big Mac with fries, it would take me half the time to burn it off. So just a quick fact, like say we both get an hour for lunch in our jobs. I'm at a massive advantage for that. So for a start, I like to say to people that, you know, being big and I'm very fortunate with that, but I eat good when I can. You know, I like having an arm and croissant when I wake up, but then that's always going to be in my mind as I move later on throughout the day. And I'm, you know, at lunchtime, I think, oh, I'd love to go for a, a cooked breakfast for brunch. And I go, James, but you had your croissant in the morning. You had that. You can't have your cake and eat it everywhere. <laughs> so uh, I think I'm quite mindful of that, but I'm, I love meat. I love eating meat. Uh, I get in a bit of a, a, a debate with the vegans because for me, I think that there is a very large percentage of vegans that are doing it for for great reasons but then i think there's a huge amount of people that are virtue signaling and they're trying to impose that they're better than other people and we've seen this in other debates as well like for instance it, and it, it really does pain me that such a great cause has been hijacked by some kind of extremist virtue signalers and again I, i've often treaded the line very carefully and said about how fantastic feminism is as a cause but again there is a small percentile of people that have almost hijacked the movement and created their own narratives and agendas, which can paint them in a, in, you know, in a bad way. And, you know, there's so many jokes about how can you tell someone's vegan? You don't, they'll tell you. And you, I think that the sustainability <laughs> documentaries as well, like we've seen Cowspiracy, Seaspiracy, uh, all of these kind of documentaries, but they're, they're all too far leaning in one direction. 
And I think that if we had an evidence-based approach down the middle, you know, like with political spectrums, especially in America, you know, you go one way, then you swing the other, then you go the other. When these documentaries come out and it's quite clear that there's a lot of propaganda, when you're imposing that eggs are worse than cigarettes and you're taking strong men who are strictly vegan or you're claiming you have athletes who, you know, at one stage in their life are, you know, meat-eating and they're, you know, incredibly their performance is incredible then suddenly a little bit later they're like oh I'm, I'm vegan now and they get the followers and they get the uh you know recognition for it but then you kind of change your tune a little bit late in the game and it's quite obvious why you're doing that and for me it would just make life a little bit easier if people were just a bit more transparent with that and yeah the documentaries need to be more down the middle because if you want to convert people to your way or you really want to propose something or a new way of doing things if your agenda is too far leaning in one direction, it's very obvious for people to see. You've hit the nail on the head. It's funny. I, I hosted a couple of years ago the big pre-Oscar party in Beverly Hills for Hollywood for 1,400 people. And I was doing it with an organization that focuses on climate change. And so um, a few weeks into the, to the planning, the head of the organization said, Andy, I really want this event to be vegan. And I said, well, that's fine. But we're trying to cater to a lot of different people and I don't want to like focus on just one group. And I understand the whole concept of methane gas and climate change and, and all these different situations that are affecting this planet. But um, I finally just said, you have to trust me. And I brought in, I don't know if you know, Tom Steyer, he ran for president against Donald Trump. Um, his wife, Kat Steyer, they, he and his wife have a ranch north of San Francisco called Tomcat Ranch, where they raise cattle. But they also have a full-time photographer. They have the full-time regenerative farming experts. It's all about how do you feed your cattle? How do you graze them? What do they eat? Um, how are they exercised? And um, so I had them come to the pre-Oscar party and set up this big station where we served meat but they were able to educate people. And to keep in mind, these are people that founded Meatless Mondays in California and in all the you know, government buildings. Like They understand, but there's a lot that goes behind, as you know, that's sort of the narratives. And as you're saying, you know, I, have a, I have a niece who is vegan and, and it's miserable taking her anywhere for dinner because she assaults the wait staff at every restaurant saying, well, what do you have as a vegan option? And they'll say, well, this, this, or, well, that's not really vegan. And you should know your information better. And I'm like, listen, I am paying this check. We are going out for dinner. Find something on that menu where you don't have to complain. I mean, it's hysterical, but you're right. The extremist behavior sometimes can be so nerve wracking where I just want to take her by the neck and throw her outside and say, listen, don't push it on people, right? I mean, but I'm, I am amazed where someone like a Tom Brady, one of the top athletes, is a vegan and has enough power and mind power and everything where he doesn't need to eat meat or all these other bad things, apparently. It's also, you think that we, it's very quick for us to find an athlete like Tom Brady. When he goes vegan, his diet becomes much more complex and it actually becomes more difficult to get essential foods in the diet and amino acids uh, to be technical, but he can just speak to his nutritionist who cooks for him around the clock and says hey i need to do this he's like yes yeah, we cool we'll mix you know lentils we've got some quinoa we've got some tofu we've just shipped in from this nice organic farm and for him it's cruisy <laughs> but when we look at say working mums you know got to get the kids from the school run you know got their job that they're doing where they're underpaid and overworked and then suddenly they watch a documentary and they go if you eat meat you're going to get cancer and you're going to die suddenly she's like oh my god i've got so much more to juggle now and then two, three weeks in, four, a month in, she starts to feel unwell. She starts to feel like she's got poor energy. And suddenly she was just saying, oh, maybe it's just because my kids are tiring me out. She starts to, you know, develop, as you go on, iron deficiencies or B12 deficiencies. And the amount of time it takes for doctors to correctly diagnose people with deficiencies, you know, it's, it's a pain in the ass trying to get your blood work done. You know, if you go in there ill, like anytime my blood done, they're like, no, 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 take these. You'll be, you'll be fine in a few weeks. So it is kind of annoying that, there are so many ways we could improve people's quality of life. We could give them more sleep. 
We could give them practices to, you know, help with stress management, even if it's meditation or taking 10 minutes of their day distraction free. We could do so many things to improve people's lives. And I think that eradicating meat just takes problems from one area and puts them into another. And I joke with the, when I get in vegan debates with people, I say the best way to do your part for the environment and, you know, sustainability is to not have kids because having children is the number one, you know, thing that's going to cause the most amount of emissions. And then I see a vegan with three kids. I'm like, hold on, you're telling me I can't have steak. You've had three kids. The amount of rubbish they're going to throw away, the amount of, you know, vehicles and journeys they're going to be making, the amount of kids they're going to have, and then the kids they're going to have. I was like, hold on, you're going to pick a hole in my existence. I'm going to pick a hole in yours. If you really cared about the sustainability of the planet that much, you might not have reproduced. So it's very easy for us all to sit on our sides of the fence and point fingers at people when, you know, everyone's acting as if their shit doesn't stink. People say to me like, oh, James, when are you going to go electric? I say, yeah, well, when I, when I can afford a Tesla, I will. So if you buy my workout program, then maybe we could go somewhere, but you haven't bought it. So, you know, so there are so many ways to have these arguments with people. And I just wish that it wasn't a small percentile of people that, you know, they try and infringe on other people's businesses. I saw some, they parade signs outside butchers and they, um, you know, all of these, like, oh, here's a video that I found on the internet of cows being treated really poorly. And, and I don't think that's, that's, that's okay. I don't think that's acceptable. No human being in their right mind of sanity would like to see an animal live a bad life. That's clear. You know, even carnivorous people that only eat steak would not sit there and go, this is nice seeing a chicken be kept in a cage or a cow not being able to go outside or whatever. So, you know, we're not saying that, you know, this is fine with us, but what we are saying is there's also huge amounts of farms where cows are in huge fields and the sun's out and they're getting free rent and free meals, you know, free rent. That's what I always say. A cow's having a great life. I think the average cow lives to 20, you know, <laughs> and I didn't even get free rent till 20. So with that in mind, it was like, you know, it's one bad, it's one bad day for these animals. And I appreciate that. They would have to die anyway. We're going to die one day. So the, we should be meeting in the middle again and saying, look, let's, let's work sustainable. Let's ensure the quality of life is good. But let's not stop, pe stop people from having their God-given right of eating what they want. Because if we stop people from eating what they want, what, what, what other freedoms are we going to take away from them? So true. And James, think about like in my wars of like, trying to promote sustainability in large events. And then it comes down to very often the menus of these very large events. And um, I had hired a group of engineers to help me come up with a calculator to measure the carbon footprint of everything that we eat. And it started to get very complicated. And so when I'm working for, when you think of like the Wolf of Wall Street, that was sort of my life for many years. I hosted all those crazy big parties and so I started saying, okay, guys, you know, just to reduce the carbon footprint, I'd like to take meat off the menu at this large event for 500 people. And I would like to, why don't we replace meat with risotto? And because you all, the businessmen will love risotto. They're like, fine. And then, of course, one of my engineers said, Andy, do you know how much water it takes to grow arborio rice? I mean, it's there's a bigger carbon footprint on risotto than there is on meat. I'm like, shit, I can't win. I don't know what to tell you, you know. And you go through this process of like, you know, how do you how do you balance all that? And how do you make the world, you know, a better place? But as you say, you still have to have the quality of life. And so I learned more like close to where you are. If we were to try to source beautiful legs of lamb from New York City, and we source it in upstate New York, which is only three hours away, to get the lamb and have them truck it down to New York City very often is a bigger carbon footprint than buying lamb from New Zealand and having it shipped by boat to New York because they'll send more lamb in a cleaner way and not in an old rickety truck that's exuding all this pollution. And the way that the land is is a paradise for lamb in New Zealand, unlike parts of New York State where they're raising the lambs. And so it was hard for me to try to explain to somebody, well, it's a smaller carbon footprint to actually buy the land from New Zealand and have it brought to New York than having it then buying it in New York. But, you know, I mean, we pick our battles, right? Have you seen how many people you would see in LA with Fiji water? They're like, oh, it's, you know, it's absolutely despicable. 
that you're shipping lamb from New Zealand, but they've just got a bottle of water that's come from Fiji. And, you know, in a, in a plastic bottle that... <laughs> so, again, people point the finger at the meat thing. They go, no, 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 that's, that's acceptable. But they're drinking their posh bottles of water. So it is one of those things. But, again, I bet that when you try and bring that argument to the table, people don't want to listen. They're like, no, 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 it's no meat. And there, there are now so many political hurdles where people... You talk about meat, oh, that's bad for the environment. You know, you talk about, uh, you know, a, a stance on vaccines. You just want to have a debate or oh, you're anti-vaxxer. You know, you might bring up a debate about uh, trans athletes in sports. You're transphobic. Everyone now has these cards to put you down in the very <laughs> early stages of a debate to make you look like a bad person. Well, you know, James, it's funny because I, you know, and I, I'll often do some speaking in the LGBTQ community and, and, I was asked after my famous scene in the fire festival to chair over like 10 gay pride parades around the world in which I had to say, unfortunately, I couldn't from a scheduling perspective. But at the end of the day, my success as a gay man has not been marching in a parade and screaming at people and pushing it on people. It's been walking into a room, holding your head up high, not making a scene <clears throat> obviously everybody knows that I'm gay, but that I turned it around and we call it flip the script where when I came out at 35 years old, I could walk into any room and I'd say, geez, James, um, what are you wearing today? You know, and you'd say, what you don't, what do you, I'm like, well, you go, okay, thanks for the tip. I really appreciate it. Like, you're like, yeah, it's this gay guy just told me what I should be wearing. I love that, you know, or anybody on the trading floors of all these big banks would say, Andy, totally fucked up forgot my wife's birthday it's on friday i'm like james i got you covered okay I'll, I'll call my favorite restaurant there's gonna be flowers for her there'll be a car to pick her up like you're like oh my god you're a rock star only the gay we say you know only the gay mafia thinks this way this is great instead of walking in a room going oh i'm gay you know and no one listens to me and i'm gonna flip my hair and i'm gonna accuse you of being a homophobe i'm like no way just Go in and, you know, I mean, I often say to younger kids, back it down. Just go in the room, be one of everybody. But when there's things to be said, say it with pride and, and say it with conviction. But you don't have to put everybody on the defense. And that's what is amazing. So it's pretty crazy, right? I mean, in this world now, uh, and, and I think you're right, everybody and social media is the biggest tool of like, creating to me, you know, a lot of challenges with people's voices and people speaking. And James, you touched a little earlier on the vaccine and we don't have to get too deep into it, but do you love this reading about poor Canada right now and all these trucks? And I mean, and I, and our, one of our neighbors is Canadian. And he was saying to me today, he was speaking to a friend, you know, who's up there right now where many of the trucks are, truckers are all vaccinated, but they're but they're just trying to make life a little bit easier for them where they don't have to battle all their deliveries every time they need to cross a border and how do they make it simpler and more seamless. But you've gone from the UK to Australia, right? Where, what, Australia was in a lockdown for two years, right? I mean. Well, we, um, I was, I've, do you know what? I've swerved it quite well. So when uh, COVID first hit Australia, they eradicated it down to zero cases. So while the world was in uh, pretty much, a, a, it was in a bad way, Australia had got their cases down to zero. And then if cases crept up to five or 10 in a state of millions, we would all put masks on, pubs wouldn't allow standing, and we'd eradicate it again. So it was incredibly crazy to see festivals here, probably in July or August of 2020. So we had proper full-on festivals and the states locked down uh, between New South Wales, Queensland, wherever. And what was interesting here was when the vaccine rollout happened, Queensland has got millions of people. They'd only had six COVID deaths in, in maybe nearly the first nine, 10 months of the pandemic. So when you've only had six COVID deaths and you've got a vaccine rollout where there are going to be vaccine injuries, there always have been vaccine injuries. You had politicians say, I'm not an anti-vaxxer, but with the statistics of vaccine injuries, we could potentially kill more people with the vaccine than we would with the virus. Now they're all obviously in a tough place because the virus is going to spread at some point. You can't remain locked down forever. And the fact that there was two weeks hotel quarantine for over a year for all arrivals. So 
I met a chap on the plane <clears throat> whose daughters live here and he lives in Dubai. Every time he wanted to see his daughters had to spend two weeks alone in a hotel room. No, and the windows don't open. So no fresh air, no balcony. And that, this is inhumane. If he had been locked up for uh, a criminal offense, he would have got an hour a day outside. Uh, so <laughs> Australia was very crazy. Then I went back to the UK because I hadn't seen my family in about 18 months. And then Australia locked down again, just oh. as the UK opened. So I kind of swerved it. And then I came back recently and it is, it is crazy. I mean, again, we, we spoke about that middle narrative for every cause. Yeah. We do feel that even this vaccine stance, and not even the anti-vaxxers, but pol politicians and politics, you know, I've always said this, right? And I'm sure you, you would agree with this. Even if something is going to better your situation, it still needs to be sold to you. Fat loss, training. It will improve your quality of life. It will improve your duration of life. It will improve your sex life. People aren't queuing up to get fit and healthy and eat better. They still need it sold to them where I say, hey, look, have a gin and tonic at the weekends. You can eat your favorite meal three nights a week, but this needs to be done. And then we see this with, uh, you know, renewable and sustainability. Everyone knows it's what the planet needs, but we still need to sell it. You know, in places like Singapore, I believe they charge you on the weight of your general trash. So your, uh, you know, recycling bins, as much as you want can go in there, but we're going to charge you on what's left over. So people are now incentivized financially, I suppose loss aversion, to then be better with what they do. And with the vaccine, there should have been, in my opinion, political leadership to help people understand how it could benefit their situation. And instead, we were just told blindly to do something. And again, same with veganism. The harder someone tries pushing it on you, the more you push back, you're like, I'm having two steaks. Waiter, bring two of them, you know, just to annoy my niece or whoever it was you were saying is the vegan. <laughs> exactly. You're so right, James. I mean, it, for me personally, on um, let's just you know, the 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 vaccination situation. You can imagine, COVID's been challenging. I'm an event planner. That's my business, and I focus on large corporate events, events and large charity events and large music festivals. So, we have been in a shutdown for two years, and I've had to be so careful not to put my name on anything because they all become spreaders one way or another. And the press is just looking for anything to come at me with when it comes to any any new failures that might take place with a large event. Now, I haven't been able to control COVID, but I've been doing a great job with promoting smaller events all outside, family events. Um, you know, you got to keep going. And that's what I keep saying to the world. Like, I understand, like, where we are with this situation, but the world's got to go on and move on. And that's where you and I are both so well aligned with finding that balance, you know, and everything in moderation. And I, it's just, it's one day at a time, but you know, we're going to continue to have these variants coming up and on and on and on. And I, I don't know what the answer is going to be. Um, it's amazing because I'm working on a new big project right now. And, um, as it turns out, I've been in some dialogue with some people from the FDA and now talking to the CDC about coming up with some protocol on large events. So when you get there, you have to go through the testing tent and everybody gets tested. But guess what? In the testing tent, there'll be a nice bar and some good music and some good food. So you're not being punished. But if you test positive, you're not coming into the big tent, but you can still have a party with the people that are negative out there. I mean, the positive out there, you don't go into the negative tent, but we come up with a happy medium on, you know, with that kind of a situation. But as it turns out, a major part of the audience that I'm going to be dealing with at one of my next large events are all non-vaxxers. And I'm like, oh boy, okay, how do I, you know, and I can't just give up and go, I'm not hosting this event. I'm not, I have to respect their, you know, I guess they're, their views and their opinions, but I want to create safety for everybody else as well. But you know what? We're it's one day at a time, right? It's um one of my very close friends runs events businesses in the UK from nightclubs, festivals. And for a start, it's people forget or they don't understand how difficult it is to run an event and how much event owners, club owners were smashed in the pandemic. Oh. And people go, oh, it's all right, you made loads of money, but you've got big costs. You've got huge venues. You know, 
And then even now coming out of the pandemic, you can't get security staff. Everyone now uses no. COVID as a reason to not work when they don't want. Before it was, hold on, you've let me down on the day I need to employ you. Now you can't get bar staff, can't get security staff. And people don't really appreciate how many moving parts there are to a festival. And one thing that kind of uh, is one of my bugbears with festivals is the amount of places that still won't do drug testing because of the legislations around drug use. And they just turn a blind eye to the fact that some massive events and festivals are where people like to go do recreationals and no one goes there wanting to commit harm to themselves, but it happens because there's not testing protocols in place. And as things remain, you know, illegal and, you know, shh, don't talk about that. People can sell different MDMA pills or whatever, incredibly strong strengths. And I still can't believe in this day and age where we see young people dying at music festivals there is not people going, hey, do you know what is the better of two evils? We have a tent here. There's not going to be any police here. You're not going to be judged. You can give us one of your pills. We'll test the strength. We know you're going to take it anyway. Go inside, be safe. There's going to be free water everywhere around the place. We've got medical staff on, on hand. You know, even if a, a festival says, hey guys, we're going to be subsidizing an extra three, four, five dollars a ticket so that we can have a safe drug testing protocol in place. I can't believe that this is still being overlooked and the government when it was covid they're like oh we care about your health so much we care about the fact we don't want people dying but then when it comes to festivals they're still turning a blind eye to drug use but james it's amazing i wish that you know i'd met you a few years ago shortly before covid i was the keynote speaker up in brisbane for big sound which is the largest music festival conference in the world and this was this this was the topic constantly was because no one likes to talk about it in the United States, that the amount of drug use that's at, the, at all the festivals. No one wants to talk about the overdoses. They don't. It's just swept under the carpet. And, the, you know, it was always a big question where I said, you know, I'm trying to change the cultures of music festivals moving forward. I'm doing my best to bring in local farmers and um, caterers that will partner with the farmers. and finding mixologists and liquor brands that are also engaging in sustainability who might want to potentially use the ingredients from the local farmers and create these cool activations and then eliminate plastic and bring in artists who are making cool sculptures out of garbage and plastic, but creating a lot of these activations where the kids might become more engaged in those kinds of things where they're not just getting completely messed up constantly. But the drug testing situation, you're spot on because our job is to kind of make it you know, we have to make it kind of cool. We have to make it kind of sexy. We got to make it something that they want to do. So it can't be threatening. But if we prove like, listen, there's so much shit out there these days that is killing kids. And it's not what you think you're taking because what you think you're taking is not what it really is when it's filled with crap. And, you know, hopefully we'll improve the messaging on this, you know, this I, sector, right? I went to uh, Ultra Music Festival in Miami in 2015. And um, that was, it was a good time. It was a very good time. It took me about a month to recover from it. But in Australia, things are incredibly tight. And music festivals are usually single line entry with sniffer dogs on either side. And one of my biggest concerns is I've seen people, young people, see the dogs and drop everything they've got on them because they don't want to get caught. And it's mortifying to see it. Whereas, you know, in America where I've been to festivals, even in Miami, get a little slap around the waist, just make sure you're not carrying hundreds of pills on you. And then you go and in places like Amsterdam, the bouncers will say, hey, let me see what you got. And you get your hand out, show them a couple of MDMA pills. You'll be like, be careful with this one. In you go. And if you have more than five, I think five's the limit that you're allowed. And where there's more leniency and more freedom with these things, I think people would then be more responsible. I think that, you know, people wouldn't have to take in extra amounts worrying their friends might lose some or stuff would get confiscated but yeah it's crazy that we have such mixed standards as a as a government as legislation on on really the levels of safety or the levels of care with people and for events moving forward like like you say it's important that we not only look to the future of sustainability but we need to look to the kind of realistic expectations of now and in america one thing that you know this is i'm just a british guy on a beach in australia whilst from the uk I, can't, I think America really need to be one of the first countries to look at legalization because with what's going over the border in Mexico, supply coming in, cartels, marijuana 
the amount of taxation that's occurred and the amount of, you know, people that aren't probably going to jail now in America, the amount of dollars that have been saved. I can't really understand many reasons outside of politics that America don't take the front line of saying, hey, do you know what? We're going to quality control MDMA. It's being used in therapeutic scenarios now. You know, you can go to uh, psilocybin, MDMA and ketamine, three of, you know, the main party drugs are now being used in clinical therapy. When is America going to be saying, look, guys, this is what we're going to do. Legalize it, tax it, get dispensaries, track what people are having, tax it. And yeah, it's crazy. James, hopefully we're close. I mean, we're praying we're close. It is completely crazy. And it's funny because I don't, not, I don't know your complete stance. I'm getting a reading on it, but total transparency. You know, I have a lot of my friends in New York who have little kids and they have a stressful job and they would come home and have four drinks or five drinks just to pull themselves down. Now they might have one drink and then they have a couple little one hitters. Now, the one hitter has become my little dream because now I take, I do a little one hitter before I go to bed every night and I sleep like a baby. And I don't think I'm hurting myself. I'm not sitting there smoking a bong for three hours. I'm not smoking a big fatty and it's a little one hitter. And I've turned one of my sisters onto it and now a brother. And we were not big drug people, but it's like, you know, and I, you touch on something quite funny, James. So I went to Ultra in, I guess it was 2019. So you were 2015, 2019. And I was in Miami having some meetings and someone, one of my staff said, Andy, you know, the, the producers, they know you're here and they would really like it if you came to the festival. I'm like, oh shit. And the chain smokers were performing and they're my little buddies. And I'm like, okay, great. I'll get up on stage with them. This will be kind of fun. But I, I said to the kids, so what do you take when you go to these music festivals today? You know, testing. I'm like, well, you should take a little Molly, a little MD. I said, okay, give me one. So I took one. I said, well, what else? They said, well, I think you should probably smoke a little pot. And I said, okay, fine. And then what else? And, you know, and I had my drinks and whatever. So, of course, I go to the festival. And, of course, there I am. And it kind of goes viral very quickly that Andy King is at Ultra. And all of a sudden, everybody's taking my picture. And people are coming up and videoing me. And then the world started to fall apart. And I got it. And I'm like, oh, my word. And before... I was brought up on stage and just said to one of my assistants, you have to get me out of here. Like, I can't even, I can't have one more photo with somebody. I can't have another conversation. I can't function. I'm like, how do these kids do it today? But they're just sitting there, you know, and, but I, you know, I did my best to try to, you know, be the ultimate team player, my little thing, but oh my word, crazy. Joe, it's um, one of my favorite quotes from Jordan Peterson is he goes, let's not ask the question why people do cocaine. We know the answer because it makes them feel great. Instead, why don't we ask people the question why they don't do cocaine every day? And he goes, that's the interesting question. He goes, human beings have got their shit together a lot more than people assume. There are so many substances at our disposal. Alcohol, everywhere. You know, that would make you, you know, relax or whatever. Like you say, your friends have four drinks. Almost everyone in the United States, the United Kingdom has access to cocaine, but they don't take it all the time because... They understand what balance is. A small percentile of people don't, and they create the narrative that it's bad, that it kills everyone, that it'll ruin your life. And there's a real large majority, especially of high achievers, that want to be in control of their situation or they want to make the most of it. There are some people that understand that their favorite band is only going to be available for them to watch for one day this year. So they maximize that moment. They might have a, you know, a small low for three days afterwards, but they know and appreciate the highs and lows that come with it. They have, you know, an all day drinking session from day to night. So they think, Do you know what, me and me and my girlfriend are going to get a bag in or whatever it is, because they don't want to get sleepy and go home or pass out before. I think that there's a huge misinterpretation of responsibility with humans. And I think that the sooner people can understand that the large majority of users, because Whatever the government thinks is the percentage of people using recreationals, it's much bigger. It's harder to find someone that doesn't than it is to find someone that does. And when people realize the reason their statistics are so out is because the majority of people do it and get on with their lives, the quicker we can progress to actually prevent bad things from happening to good people looking to have a good time. It is. It's, I mean, it brings up a topic of like heroin and it, you know, we call that the silent killer. And when you look at so I'm from, 
outside of Boston, Massachusetts, in a little area called Cape Cod, which is a fishing community. And then you have Maine, and you have New Hampshire, and you have Vermont, and that's all of New England, which is a lot of parts of it are very poor. And uh, it's just, the, it's an epidemic. I mean, the, the, the silent killer of heroin, where it's literally, many people would never know that Joe has a heroin problem, or Tina, or whatever. They just don't know it. And it's just mind-boggling to me to see, you know. But then I've learned about people who work on Wall Street, go to an investment banking firm every day and function, and they they have a little heroin addiction, but it's just their way of life. And I'm like, oh, my word. I mean, who's to point fingers, right? But as you say, I'm sure the statistics are much higher than then. And, and I think that if there was a proper, you know, process in place, because all of these things are happening behind closed doors, and I don't expect it's particularly easy to type in, you know, heroin addiction therapy, or people would even want to do that. You know, we've, only, we've seen a massive increase in people reach out for mental health help in the last few years where therapy is no longer kind of stigmatized. But I do always think that if things were legalized and taxed and there was funding there for people, that we could then create, you know, centers and therapy. And I always remember that uh, a lot of American troops that went to Vietnam in the Vietnam War became addicted to opioids. And the US were really expecting people when they came back to have these addictions continue. And I think I could be skewing the statistic. It was less than 5% of people ever did it again. And they realized that it was more to do with the circumstances that created their addiction and use than it was the actual person's psychology. So a lot of the time, we don't have so much a drug problem. We have a people problem. We have an unemployment problem. We have a poverty problem. And we have, you know, a financial problem where people are turning to that as a solution. It's not so much their problem. So these poor areas, when people haven't got a job, they haven't got a purpose, they haven't got a way out or a way to progress their lives, they turn to this. And that's not me saying that objectively, that's kind of my theory on it. Yeah. And um, yeah, it was very interesting that so many people came back from Vietnam and never felt the need to touch it again. It is pretty crazy. It is. And I feel like if you think about, I don't want to keep addressing COVID, but you think about just the whole ramifications of the stress and anxiety that a lot of humans now have, you know, been handling each and every day with this pandemic is crazy. And it's not, I mean, the mental health issues I think are pretty, pretty scary. And then you compound that with the pressures of social media and where, you know, Facebook and everybody looks like they have a perfect life. And, you know, you just go down the list. I mean, it's amazing that, that more people are not, you know, completely addicted to drugs with the pressure and the stress, right? I think uh, as well, one of the ways I like to talk about it is human beings have their little ecosystems that they live in. Now, the United Kingdom is, it's all right, but one of the things that makes the UK great is how close it is to Europe and that you can go to see Spain, you can go to Italy, you can go to Ibiza in two and a half hours. And that's how the ecosystem of little humans has been. And if aliens were looking down on these ants, these ants jump on a plane, go to Ibiza, get their two weeks of sun go back, enjoy another month, and then they come over and go somewhere else. And then the other European countries have benefited from the tourism. And then the tourists and the people in the UK are getting in shape and saving up money to go on holiday. One of the things kind of we massively overlooked was we took away tourism for those European countries. We took away holidays for the British people. We took an ecosystem and vastly changed it more than just sticking people in their homes. People didn't feel the need to save up money. They didn't feel the need to get in shape for their holiday. They didn't have something exciting to look forward to after three months of saving. The places that relied on tourism in Europe didn't have any money. So, some, And, you know, even your favorite plant in the garden, you move it a few meters into the shade. It can be the difference between it flourishing and, and dying. It's in the same garden. It's the same plant. It's in the same part of the world. And I think that we massively overestimate or we, we underestimated the impact of small changes to these ecosystems. And that's one of the biggest worrying things for me because people are still living in the same houses, going to bed in the same bedroom. They might have the same jobs, but so much has been changed by the pandemic. And for me, I almost felt like I had real first world problems where I travel a lot. And when that was taken away from me, I felt like I was suffocating. And it's hard to turn around to someone who's bringing up three kids on their own and go, yeah, I didn't get to go on holiday for a year. And they're like, mate, you don't know problems, but. All of our problems are so individual to us. And 
you know, yeah. whether you are the person with three kids, you're the person that's made unemployed, or you're the very fortunate person myself who wasn't able to travel, problems still feel the same to people, irrespective of how far they are on the spectrum. Even I'm sure a lot of wealthy people went through big, you know, you, you know, having a lot of money in your bank isn't going to stop you from getting depressed. And for us, I think that was, right, let's look at helping people's physical health, but we never really could fully understand or quantify the impacts it would have on people's mental health. And I read, James, that you, you've done some touring around Australia, sort of talking on the topic of, of success and, you know, how to be successful, et cetera. <clears throat> Coming out of COVID, and you touched on it earlier, where people have had time to like make mental life changes, where I don't want to do this kind of a job anymore. I don't want to, um, you know, the world's changed. And you said it firsthand. I mean, it's like for us in the music festival industry, you look at, for instance, the Travis Scott horrible situation with that concert, with that festival. And I'm on the phone with some of the producers like, Andy, you know what happened. We didn't have enough security. We didn't have enough barriers. We didn't have enough volunteers that we normally would do for crowd control. And, you know, what do you think are going to be a few, I mean, in your opinion, as we come out of this, it's going to be interesting to see maybe a lot of people's, their definition of success has changed. I don't know. Don't you want to go to work? Do you want to, I mean, I, where do you think we're headed? I think for some people, they woke up and realized they were sleepwalking through their life. They yeah. realized they were just going to work, earning money, coming home, watching Netflix. And they almost thought that not enjoying their job was a part of being a human. And I think a lot of people woke up and were like, hold on. And it gave them time to reflect. They weren't, they did, they lost a lot of dead time traveling, commuting to work, not having to commute. They found two hours extra every day to think about their life. And they were like, hold on, what I'm doing doesn't match up to my values. What do I, what do I find important in life? Does my life add up to that? I think a lot of people bettered their situation. However, the flip side of that, I think there are a lot of people that got paid to not have to work and they got a taste for it. They were like, oh, this is great. And then suddenly, you know, another lockdown comes. There are some people licking their lips at that. Some people are going, yeah, this is perfect. A lot of miserable people that want to see other people miserable as well. And then, you know, even one thing that, you know, and, and again, this probably could be taken wrong. I hate that there are some people that love wearing masks. I, I, see, I see them in their cars on their own, mask, <laughs> going for a walk, right? It, the, the statistics of COVID spreading outside, sunlight, UV, it's 32 degrees one day in Australia. There's no one within 100 meters of someone walking on the street and they've got two masks on. And I think to myself, some of you love this. I don't know why, but some of you love this. And there are some people that really did, you know, take the biscuit. Some people that probably thought, oh, I can't do more than 20 hours or I don't get my furlough. And then they, they do let down their employers. They do let down, you know, or, or there's a lot of probably people that think the world's going to end. What's the point? What's the point in going to work? What's the point in putting my security jacket on today? What's the point in volunteering at the festival? Because either way, there's probably going to be a new variant that's going to come around. Trump's probably going to get reelected. You know, oh, they, no, no. <laughs> so I won't, I won't manifest. But yeah, there's probably a lot of people that probably think this is the end as it is. And they, yeah, they don't do their part to keep society how it should be. Well, I'm hoping there's no better way, right, than lead by example. So I'm hoping that as I get a handle maybe on COVID a little bit better and, and on the variants and, and understand moving forward how we should handle it and how we operate on our daily lives and how, what's the new norm, you know, maybe we're able to lead by example and get some of the, these people back in the workforce. And I'm all for, I mean, I, I was a headhunter. I placed people in jobs right out of university. And I did that for almost nine years. And I'd have people coming in and they've been in a, as a marketing director for a company for you know, eight years and on. And I said, so, you know, what, what is it that you'd like to do? And they're like, oh, well, I mean, this is my experience. And I'm like, well, if you could do anything, what would it be? And they're like, well, my husband and I have always wanted to open a bed and breakfast. And I'm like, well, why don't you do it? I'm like, well, I said, just start every day by taking an extra few minutes in the evening and putting together a plan and have a storyboard and, you know, have a vision board and kind of slowly make your way. My bosses used to want to kill me. Like, what are you doing? And I'm like, well, 
I don't want people to be miserable. And guess what? Do you know how many people wrote me after years saying that was the best advice anybody ever gave me? Like, think about it, James. I mean, I don't know what the percentile is, but how many people in this world go to work every day with a job they hate? Because they're trapped, yeah. right? And they feel I've trapped. Got, I've got a housemate who does it. You know, they, I see them on a Sunday night. Sunday night, they're, oh, you know, they're stressed to see the way they're moping about the house. And sometimes I, I always say to people, I'm like, Mondays do not suck. If you think they do, there's probably an issue with what you're doing. You know, <laughs> there are so many people that wake up loving Mondays. They're like, yeah, I can get productive, get to work, get doing things that I needed to do before. And, you know, the more people can realize that they're, you know, even if, even if you come up to me and say, James, I'm the laziest person in the world. There is someone out there getting paid to test sofas. There's someone out there getting paid to test mattresses. You can find something, you know, James, I'm, I'm gluttonous. Cool. There's someone that needs to eat some food to make sure it's all right. I love that. God. All right. So James, MMA, crazy Jake Paul, you know that I was on Logan's podcast. And so we go back and forth every once in a while. Jake, I mean, what goes on? What, I mean, what do you think? Do you know what? There are a lot of people that, that hate Jake Paul, but I, I see John and in the beginning. I thought he's, he's not as fun as his older brother, but he's actually incredibly smart. And the way I could be wrong in assuming this, obviously Logan's always been the guy that's probably been uh, a little bit more successful in the early phase. And, and a lot yeah. of people would say Jake is living in Logan's shadow, but then Jake had such an incredible year and almost every single point where you're like, do I love him or hate him? You're like, wow, this guy actually is he's playing the game and he's winning it. And when he did his Dana uh, diss track this week, mm -hmm. I thought you, you literally have the MMA community eating out of your hand. You've actually manipulated your position to be one of the biggest and most influential fighters going. And, you know, he had a very good uh, comeback where no one can remember who, uh, you know, big boxers boxed in their early years because a lot of people do box nobodies in their first 10 fights to get their record up. So you could be a 10 and 0 boxer. Uh, if he moves into MMA, I think it's going to be a little bit more difficult because he is a very good striker, but I've seen, I've seen moving into grappling and wrestling. And although he's got a bit of a base of wrestling, I think that's quite a bit more difficult. I think Tyrone Woodley would be licking his lips if you got a rematch in MMA. But uh, yeah, do you know what? From a British person watching overseas, it's one of those things you just can't stop watching. I, I think that Jake Paul, I've probably paid more pay-per-view uh, fights to watch him than anyone else. Oh my gosh. Well, <clears throat> I often say, because my partner is a big fan of MMA, so I've gotten into it a little bit and I'm always sort of wondering, you know, I, I hate to even mention his name because he just drives me completely crazy. But my partner's from Scotland and, and you have that neighboring country and you have that wonderful human being called Conor McGregor. Oh my gosh, it's enough to kill me. Now, honestly, just quickly, do you feel like James, half the shit he does is just to promote his brand and to get the world going? Or is he, is he like just, does he have a, I don't know. I mean, I'm always looking going, what? Is he really picking a fight with someone again right there? Is he really, what do you think? Do you, I think his aspirational years were incredible. I think that he was so committed to the cause yeah. that he smashed the target too well. He obliterated it. Um, I remember reading a story about, uh, I think it was Marilyn Manson, who was crying into a pile of cocaine at 25 because he had completed everything he ever wanted to do in life at 25. And, you know, there's this kind of gold medal depression they talk about where Olympic athletes get the gold medal and then get depressed because they have no purpose. Connor to me smashed his goals so much that the incredible amount of wealth and success almost made him weak. And I'm, I think that I don't know him personally. I think he might have been so successful. He's surrounded himself by uh, yes men. And I think that uh, one thing that I love is I, I train Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. I'm a purple belt. And no matter how good my week goes, I get beaten up at least once a week, once a week, someone, wipes the floor with me. It doesn't matter if I've got a blue tick or nearly a million followers. It doesn't matter if my podcast is smashing it or I've sold a million books. One person each week beats me up. And it's such an amazing thing. That's why so many people are obsessed with martial arts because there's this humility that comes with it. For years, people have gone to religion having this higher being. I don't need a God when there's a black belt around the corner who's going to beat me up. So for him, 
I admire so much of his success. But when I look at it now, or the last three, four years, I almost feel sorry for him because he has so much money and so much success and so much recognition. It must be so difficult to live. And the same with Dan Bilzerian. I sometimes look at his life and I don't envy it at all, even though he's got seven girlfriends, right? It'd be nice for a week on a yacht. <laughs> but there's, a, there's actually a very, a very incredible quote by a, an author called Carol Dweck where she says, becoming is better than being. And there's a part of me in the back of my mind that never actually wants to be what I'm setting out to accomplish and become. Well, you're saying I don't want to be corny, James, but my little Miley Cyrus, you know, had a song called The Climb. And it, it, it's, it's, to me, the narrative is so incredible because you think about all the shit you go through and every day you're like, I just want to get to this point. I, I want to get here. I want to have that. I want to... I want to get the bigger house, the fancier car. I really want that Tesla, you know. And we we lose fact. We, I mean, we lose track of the fact that that here we are. Like, it's all the journey that's really the most important part of it. It's like once you get there, you're like, shit, I'm here. This is what it's about. Like, the most meaningful things we go through are during the climb. And, you know, I think every day. I mean, there it is, your weekly climb, getting beaten the shit out of, but you're like, wow, that's part of my climb. Like, that's totally cool. Or maybe you're not, and maybe you're beating them up. I don't know. But, um, you know, for me, I'm, I'm, you know, COVID's been very challenging, obviously, in the event world, and it's all part of the climb. And we've, we, you know, my partner and I ended up collecting pallets from the back of supermarkets and building a hundred foot by 80 foot fence and putting in the biggest garden you've ever seen. And we started a vegetable stand at the foot of our driveway and we sold vegetables for a year and we had more fun. It was unbelievable. People are like, what are you doing? You know, there was an electric gate with cameras and, but there it was. And we had, it was called the Tiki Bar Farm Stand because we had an old Tiki Bar behind one of the garages of the barns that we've dragged out. And some days we've made $10 and some days we made a hundred. I mean, but that was the journey. Like people are like, oh, COVID's ruined our lives. And I'm like, take the time and reflect, read a book, go for a hike. I, like you, is normally I'm on a plane 10 days a month, 20 days a month half the time. And I've been on a plane 10 times now in the past two years, maybe a little bit more, but that I got to spend eight months with my dog. Like, was unheard of. I mean, I'm so blessed for that. So I think you're right. I mean, it's, it is interesting where things, once you get there, but I, I'm always like saying to Craig, geez, Connor, I mean, he's always doing this stuff. I feel like it's, I, I get embarrassed for him, but then I'm like, is it all part of a PR ploy? Like, is he supposed to be doing this? Is, is Jake supposed to be insulting Dana every two minutes for PR? I mean, I don't know. I think um, Connor, I think he has nowhere to go. He, he's in the upper stratosphere and it must be a very difficult place yeah. to be there. Jake, I think, you know, he, he has probably quite a bit to go. And I actually think the fight in his, I don't know him personally, but I think it's given him something to focus on, something to climb because he still has a lot of holes in his game. He knows he's not great at some certain things. But when you said about the vegetable patch, it reminded me of, I always say that pleasure is your nights out, your festivals, you know, doing a, a bit of molly. We call it Mandy in the UK, which made it very difficult when I first went to Miami. They're like, who the hell is Mandy? Well, where then, is she? <laughs> yeah. But then I think happiness comes from the tasks that you almost, it's almost like the, the long suffering. It's going to training sore. It's, you know, spending the day with your partner, doing selling vegetables, you know. It's, it comes from almost the things that everyone has access to. And I always say this to people. There are a lot of people who go, oh, it's all right for you because your business does well. But not everyone has access to pleasure. Not everyone can go stage with a chain smokers. Not everyone can fly on a private jet. But happiness is available to everyone. It is planting vegetables. It is starting a martial art and buying a gi for $100 that lasts you four years. And when people understand that we all have access to happiness, like Conor McGregor probably has more pleasure available to him than anyone in the world. So does Dan Bilzerian. I'm not sure they both are fully happy in their lives and they might be trying to replace their happiness quota with pleasure. And that could be why they look, we're all very smart human beings. We look at them, we go, something's not right. I think it's quite easy to spot when people are trying to fill their happiness quota with pleasure. Wow. James, that's a great way to 
start to wrap this up. I love that happiness. Okay, so one last question. And so, and I'm sure you're probably not asked this question every day, but it's sort of something close to my heart. And if you could tell me about a time where you had to take a big one for the team, what, what would that be? Oh, this is an interesting one. Well, let me think. When do I have to take one for the, the I know the scale of, of which you had to do. I'm now trying to think of uh, if, I've, if I've done anything that could be considered gay. And I played rugby for 15 years. So, you know. I well, could, you don't even have to go on the gay piece, though. It could be, you know, going the extra mile where you never dreamed. Because I get you know on what? stage, obviously, right? And I say to people, they're like, hey, it's Andy King from Fire Festival. And, and everybody's like, all the kids cheer and on and on. And they're like, oh, my gosh. And I say, how would you like to be one of the biggest, most visible failures in pop culture today? Yeah, that's me. How would you like that? And I'm like, you know what? You learn more from your failures than you do your successes. And I say, kids, get out there and take a risk. Get out there and do something you never dreamed you'd ever do. And you might have to do something to make your startup successful. You might have to go the extra mile. So James, when did you have it's, to go to the extra mile? About four years ago, I was out on a night out in Brisbane. I was with my best friend. We're at a bar. He gets talking to a couple of girls. I can tell that he's taken a liking for one of the girls and the girl's taken a liking for him. I look at her friend. Oh, I look no. at him. I look at the friend. I look at him. He, he's about to say something. I said, I'll do it. And he looks at me and goes, are you sure? I look back at him and I go, yeah. And we've been ah. best friends ever since. Best friends. Uh, so that's, that's what as, friends are all about. <laughs> that's, as, that's as far as I'll take that. And if the girl from Brisbane is listening, I'm sorry I never spoke to you again. <laughs> well, you're a good friend, James. Okay, so James, thank you so much for being on my podcast. You know, it is, uh, I think you've demonstrated how to be fully prepared. And I obviously, with your with your insights on, on PT, on your insights on success, on your insights on work and family balance and on, you know, finding that middle ground. I mean, I, I, I think you're hitting it out of the park. I love it. Now, how do we, how do we reach you on social media? So I'm very fortunate to have parents that called me James Smith. So I've had to put PT at the end, although, you know, I'm not just a personal trainer. I've got feelings, you know, so I am James Smith PT on all platforms. If I ever become wealthy enough to buy the page that is just James Smith, I'll be making a bid for it. But if um, if they type my name into any social media platform or website, they'll find me. And if they like what they see, they're welcome to follow. And if they don't, I will be okay. I love that. And your books, James, where can people buy the books? If they go onto my social media platforms or they find their way to my website, they'll be directed. I've got a good social media strategy. They'll find a way to a book at some point. Okay, I love it. I love it. Well, Thank you so much for joining me on Fully Prepared. You are a total inspiration. And um, I'm wishing you all the luck. I hope the world is treating you well. And Australia is probably one of my favorite countries in the world. I know why you're flocking there. I can't wait to go spend a little bit more time there, hopefully in the near future, for sure. Well, next time you're at a big event and you're thinking, oh, do you know what? I think James would like it here. Just send me an invite and I'll be on the next flight. Okay, well, there may just be one in May, so we'll keep you we'll keep you abreast. Okay, until then, James, take care and thanks for being on Fully Prepared. I appreciate your time today and what an enjoyable conversation. Thank you very much. This is a Podcast Now production.